Welcome to week six of EW's Binge of Harry Potter. I'm your co-host, Molly Smith. And I'm your other co-host, Mark Snedeker. <laughs> I guess I'm not you, the audience's we're, co-host. I'm Mark's co-host. I like that we're just, no, we're just hosts. We're, we're, we're in hosts. this together. Exactly. And today we're talking about Half-Blood Prince. Very exciting stuff. Yes, Half-Blood Prince. Book six, the penultimate. The one that, I mean, in my opinion, nothing happens. But everybody jumps on me when I say that. But this, it's such a setup book. Like, it's a very it's big It's getting setup book. everybody ready for all the stuff that's about to go down in book seven. Yeah. Book six goes down, in my opinion, as I think, you know, the second worst book. But I will say, I love the movie. Well, book six, Half Blood Prince, the book comes out July 16th, 2005. The movie comes out four years later on July 15th, 2009. And by then, book seven has already been released. So we're in deep movie-only territory at this point. And what I actually really admire about the sixth movie is that because it is so much set up for what's going to be an inevitable horror story of a finale, a two-part finale, movie six is actually really funny. And it's all about love and humor and those last fleeting moments of adolescence. So for today's episode, we're going to go through the 10 best couples... In Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Some of them are romantic. Some of them um, have more than two. So there are some triangles and some squares. And uh, I don't think we get into Pentagon territory. No Pentagons here. Although, although there's an argument to be made. I think so. And our guest today, Molly, tell us about our guest. Ooh, we have a very, very exciting guest today. It's none other than Dean Thomas himself, Alfred Enoch. Yeah, Can't my, wait to have him. My buddy Alfred, we enlisted him to join us. And uh, you might know him from How to Get Away with Murder, but for the purposes of this week, he is uh, How to Get Away with a Weasley for like a year and a half. <laughs> so stick with us as we go into the 10 best couples in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. So I kind of lied. There is actually an 11th couple that I would like to talk about quickly before we get into 10. These guys aren't actually in the movie necessarily, but they're a great kickoff to the book. The first chapter of Half-Blood Prince is called The Other Minister. And I remember reading this and thinking, oh, my God, this was a shocker. So essentially, it's all about Cornelius Fudge giving one last visit to the Muggle Prime Minister, which is a huge revelation that I know a lot of people always wonder, do Muggles know about the Wizarding World? How could they not? How could a, like, does the Queen know? And the answer is, the Queen probably doesn't know anything, let's be real, like, about (laughs) anything other than Corgis. But the Muggle Prime Minister gets a visit from the Minister for Magic anytime something bad happens. So, in the past, um, the Muggle Minister has only been informed of a few things that we know of in recent years. Sirius Black's escape from Azkaban, the Quidditch World Cup disaster, uh, as well as the mass breakout from Azkaban in Book 5. But this time around, there's a bunch of disasters because, as we know, Voldemort is back. Everyone knows he's back. Cornelius Fudge even knows he's back. And that's also why Cornelius Fudge has been sacked. Yeah, deservedly so. Deservedly. So he's giving one last visit to the Muggle Minister just to kind of inform him that, oh, by the way... All the shit that's been going on, it's actually magic. And, you know, this is a new prime minister, so he's still kind of getting used to it all. For the purposes of the film, 
we see these attacks manifested as an attack on Diagon Alley, mm-hmm. um, the kidnapping of Ollivander. Which is huge in the next one. Mm-hmm. And uh, an attack on the Millennium Bridge, which is super scary and super twisty and really a cool example of uh, the film taking some liberty. because yeah, it was done really well visually. Yeah, it was, it was a great little Death Eater attack. Uh, in so much as you can call that a, de- <laughs> uh, a great Death Eater attack. Number one Death Eater fan over here, guys. Mark yeah. Snedeker. Meanwhile, poor Amelia Bones. She's killed in these disasters in the book, but doesn't get no love in the movie. Oh, well. So that's it. That's my little bonus. Number 11, um, Cornelius Fudge and the Muggle Minister. Plus, um, new Minister for Magic, Rufus Scrimger. Scrimger. But we don't see him in the movies until Deathly Hallows Part 1. Yeah. So now let's get into the real real meaty hormonal couples. (laughs) And let's start with a pair of sisters. (laughs) Molly, number 10 is Bellatrix Lestrange and Narcissa Malfoy. Oh, my God. They're so deliciously evil. I love them. They're creeping around, basically, because Malfoy has been given the task by Voldemort to kill Dumbledore. Yeah, I mean, hopefully you've all read this book and seen this movie. <laughs> but yes, Malfoy is given a task, and we don't know what it is at the moment, but we know that um, it's big and it's going to require some help. Yeah, at this point, we don't know what it is in the movie, but you know that it's big and you know that the Dark Lord has requested it. So Bellatrix and Narcissa go to Snape to sort of seek his counsel, and eventually that leads to Snape making the unbreakable vow that he's going to look out for Malfoy. And that's yeah. a binding agreement. Like, if you break it, you die couple things here uh, one there are three stipulations right he will watch over draco while he carries out his mission two he will protect him from harm and three he will do the job himself if draco is unable to accomplish it so those are the stipulations by which snape has to agree um in the book it's narcissa who actually forces the the vow to be made but in the movie it's bellatrix because she doesn't trust snape at this point because he didn't participate in the battle of the department of mysteries in the last book yeah. So I'd be wary of him, too, if I were Bellatrix. Yeah. But they're at his childhood home. And you know it's a big deal when two characters, like, grasp hands. Not just, like, like holding hands. Like, hold my hand, Molly. Like, interlocking. Yeah, like, right now Molly and I are holding hands. Like, oh, like a nice handshake. Hey, how's it going? But, like, Unbreakable Vow, it's like... It's like a wrist grab. <laughs> yeah, it's like a deep, like, you feel my finger on your, you know, whatever, forearm. And you got some, like, gold magic... Some cool squir- magic strands. Swirls going around. Like, some silly string enchantment. Yeah. Let's get a little bit into Bellatrix and Narcissa, because this, I think, is the best time to talk about who these women are. There are such big characters in the books, and yet, certainly not much love is given to Narcissa over the, um, over the course of the series, a couple interesting things about these people. So they actually have one other sister, Andromeda Tonks, right? Bellatrix is the oldest. Andromeda is the middle child. Narcissa is the youngest. They are all members of the Black family. Andromeda Tonks famously leaves the family because she marries Ted Tonks, a muggle. And just like Sirius, she's kind of expelled from the family. Yeah, she's burned. Her face is burned off on the tapestry. So Bellatrix and Narcissa do stay close together. They both believe in pure blood fragility, I guess you could call it, but Bellatrix is like uh, an extremist. So a little bit about Bellatrix first off. Um, She is the oldest sister, so she goes to Hogwarts first. She makes the family proud, is sorted into Slytherin. She goes on to marry a guy named Rodolphus Lestrange. So Rodolphus is around, but obviously Bellatrix loves Lord Voldemort. And it's an interesting idea, the idea of love throughout the series, because we've seen love manifest itself as Lily's protective love over Harry Molly Weasley's love for everyone, but 
this is a weird kind of love because this is like a like a zeal you know this yeah. is this is a fervent it's like devotee a, a cult-like love yeah which is still love so there's an interesting kind of think piece to be had on what love means in this series and what it means for bellatrix so bellatrix was out of school before um snape got in um which is interesting she is she's younger than voldemort but older than all of the other sort of main adult characters mm-hmm. but then there's narcissa who is actually a nice girl she goes to school she's in slytherin she meets her her uh, school crush turned her husband. Yeah, her <laughs> high school sweetheart, her Hogwarts sweetheart, Lucius. And she has mother's love, right? All of the book well, is about her defending Draco, uh, even though they're in this sticky, dark situation because of Lucius's allegiance and because of Bellatrix. Narcissa never was a Death Eater, J.K. Rowling has actually said. She just agrees with blood purity and does what she does out of love for her family. Which I think is a really interesting thing you're touching on here because that's so much a part of the reason why like the Sacred 28 that we've talked about got so swept up in these wizarding wars. The 28 families. That's sort of the propaganda and message that Voldemort was putting out there about keeping bloodlines pure and purely magical families, even though he himself is a half-blood. Like, let's put that out there again. Mm -hmm. And so it's one of those things where like, they agree with that message and then maybe i don't know if they knew fully what was happening well some of them at least there's blurred lines of evil right when we talked about slytherin we talked about the idea that yeah some of them are truly evil and will go on to be death eaters and others are just embodying those traits of slytherin cunning ambitious all these things that aren't evil but then again the whole series is about the blurred lines of evil and what is good what is evil light and dark is in all of us so narcissa malfoy she's got that blonde streak in that black hair Light in the dark. Oh, my goodness. But it's interesting what you say, though, about her love, because I wonder how much... Okay, she wasn't a Death Eater. She put her son before everybody else. But, like, how much does that actually redeem her? Because at the end of the day, she's still amongst that crowd yeah. and I think bearing re- witness to evil. I think it redeems her. Like, I would I would say it does. But I think it does on some level, but... Right, I mean, she's still an Alfoy at the end of the I day. I love her hair, though, so I'll love give her it. that. So that's what kicks off the book. And now we're moving on to couple number nine. This fun little duo, Professor Slughorn and Professor Dumbledore. So, um, you know, in the books, it's a little different. Dumbledore goes to get Harry from the Dursleys. But in the film, Dumbledore finds Harry uh, in this little train uh, underground station. And they go on the first mission of the movie, which is to recruit Professor Horace Slughorn. Well, not professor anymore, just a guy. He was a long-running potions professor at Hogwarts. And, and they Dumbledore want him wants to bring him back. Yeah. For a very specific reason. Dumbledore needs a memory. Um, it is the key to unlocking a suspicion Dumbledore has about Voldemort, but he needs a memory from Slughorn, and uh, Slughorn won't give it up freely. So basically Slughorn was this potions teacher at Hogwarts for 50-some-odd years, right? He was the head of Slytherin House. He was the Snape of his time. He's actually the same age as Dumbledore, right? They were born the same year, They went up in school together. They both started working at Hogwarts together when Dumbledore was the Transfiguration teacher, I believe. And Slughorn taught Molly and Arthur Weasley. He taught the Malfoys. He taught um, Lily Evans and James Potter, all these people. So he's an old-timer, but he also taught Voldemort. And he had a favorite student, and it was Tom, Tom Riddle. That was this guy. So after Voldemort fell from power, Slughorn was actually a little happy. 
And Dumbledore was always suspicious. He thought, why are you so happy that Voldemort, you know, more than others, he was always joyful, even though Lily Evans slash Potter, one of his favorite students, had been killed. Yeah. So Slughorn was fine for years when Voldemort had fallen. But then when it when word got out that Voldemort had returned, Slughorn immediately knew that what he had told Voldemort all those years ago was probably true. The relief he felt that, oh, Voldemort's dead. He couldn't have done what I maybe had told him to do, which is make a horcrux. But we'll get into that later. Slughorn thinks, "Uh oh, it might be true. So he's retreated. Dumbledore knows it's time to get him back. And he recruits Harry because because if Slughorn loves anything, it is collecting talented, famous and valuable, well-connected people. And who better than Harry Potter? There's nobody better as far as collecting a student than Harry Potter. Um, so Slughorn does eventually go back to Hogwarts. He's convinced because... He's left alone. Dumbledore yeah. leaves them alone because he, he <laughs> Dumbledore knows... Dumbledore was playing that... Not not hard to get. But playing it cool. He was playing it cool. He's like, all right, I can see you're not going to come back. So, like, I'm out with my knitting pattern. And then Slughorn comes running after them. And he's like, all right, I'll do it. On the condition that he gets a better office. Hmm. Um, and so he goes to Hogwarts and he starts teaching potions again. And Harry ends up taking potions. And this leads us to... Number eight on our list, our next couple is Harry and the Half-Blood Prince. Yes, so Half-Blood Prince um, is not really a person here. It's more of a uh, of a metaphor. I mean, it is literally a person. It's literally just, a person, you know, but at this point, it's just a book, yeah, basically. Yeah, I mean, Half-Blood Prince is kind of like Harry Potter to us, right? I mean, like, it's just sort of writing, writing on a page. Anyway, Harry takes this class. Because he doesn't realize he's going to be taking the class until later... He gets this old crappy copy of Advanced Potion Making in Slughorn's class. And in it are all of these tips and tricks for how to basically do better than Hermione. Hermione. (laughs) And basically like the writer of the book itself. So it begins what's a really funny stunt of Harry's, which is becoming an A-plus potion student to the chagrin of Hermione and quite literally everybody else. The Half-Blood Prince teaches him how to make the Draft of the Living Death, which in turn gives Harry this little bottle called Felix Felicis. Also known as Liquid Luck, which is huge later. Yeah. Ginny, of course, warns, like, once everybody gets wise to the idea that Harry has this incredible book, you know, all of his friends know that he is not good at potions. Harry, Hermione, Ron, and Ginny are all very aware that something is literally messed up and your directions in this book. And Jenny, God knows she knows about books um, telling her what to do. Well, actually, I think that's a really good point, Mark, because there's such a resemblance here to Tom Riddle's diary in that you have this book, and at first you think it's good, and it's giving you all this scoop and everything. But, but you don't know who it be, is. Like, I don't want to say that they're both deeply evil. Obviously, Tom Riddle's is much more evil. But the book leads to some very bad things later yeah. on. I mean, right. It's like the book isn't evil. There's no evil in it aside from a spell here or there. But for the most part, it's just about blind trust. And, um, you know, certainly Harry should have learned this lesson. But Ginny is the first one to say, do not follow all these directions. I always wondered, you know, we know that the Half-Blood Prince eventually is, is Snape. But... All throughout the book, we're not really aware. We're kind of led to believe maybe it's Voldemort again or someone else. But I did always wonder, you know, Snape has such an affinity for potions. This book is riddled with, uh, maybe bad choice of words, (laughs) but this book is riddled with curses and charms and fixes for potions. The Half-Blood Prince is a cool mystery. It is a friendly face. I, you know, before you know who it is, you, you kind of enjoy that Harry's 
kicking ass at school because God knows he never does before. No. And like, I mean, we've often asked ourselves, how is Harry doing in school? And it's never. This is the best excellent. it'll ever get. Like, yeah. This is the best he will ever be He's peaked in school. his academic life. <laughs> and it is great to see Hermione just like flailing. Like they literally even make her hair just explode, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> But this is not where our story with Slughorn ends. It is not just that he teaches class and loves Harry for being a star student. That love, plus the fact that he's famous Harry Potter, results in the reboot, reformation of the Slug Club, which is kind of um, number seven, couples. (laughs) It's Slughorn (laughs) and your name here if you're famous, well-connected, or show great promise. Yeah, Molly, what is the Slug Club? Tell us all about the Slug Club. The Slug Club is basically, it's a select group of students who Slughorn admires for the reasons that Mark just listed. And basically he has like dinner parties and there's a Christmas party later on. And it's just like a gathering of these intelligent or, you know, well-connected students that he has. Yeah, they either show great promise or just have a great Rolodex. At the beginning of the movie, you see him sort of looking at his photos and mentions that Lily Potter, Evans at the time, was in Slug Club. Um, Yeah, the old members of the Slug Club. This is something he used to do all the time when he was a teacher at Hogwarts before. He's got people who are going to serve him well in life. So Ambrosius Flume is the owner of Honeydukes. And uh, nowadays he sends sweets to Slughorn whenever he wants. There's Gwenog Jones, who's a Quidditch captain. Barnabas Cuff, editor of the Daily Prophet. Um, who else? And there's also all these characters that we know, right? There was Snape, who was a great potions mm-hmm. guy. Lily Evans, who was a star student. Lucius Malfoy was in there for some reason, probably because his father is a they're wealthy. They're really wealthy. Yeah. Regulus Black was in there as well. Mm-hmm. And then there was Tom Riddle. More on that later again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With the pawn sieve. So the new members of the Slug Club are. Actually, not that impressive, to be honest. It's kind of a small list. But then again, you know, Slughorn just got there. So we've got Harry, who is Harry and also is pretty good at potions. We've got Hermione, who actually isn't that great at potions necessarily this this year. But Slughorn can still recognize that she is... She's still a step above everybody else. Yeah, totally. There's um, Melinda Bobbin, whose family owns a chain of apothecaries. They better be the best chain of apothecaries. Right. Mm. Ginny, who is also promising. Slughorn sees her do a hex on the train and likes her. There's Blaze Zabini, whose mother is a rich, beautiful witch. Two twins who are very weird in the movie. Yeah. I don't want to talk about them. <laughs> they're like the... they're Add it to Mark's hate list. Yeah. They're next the, to Dobby. They're the Caro twins, and they're dressed in green in the whole movie and never say a word. And then there's Cormac McLaggen. The hottest person to walk the halls of Hogwarts. I don't. I don't need you bringing up Cedric Diggory. I don't need you bringing up like. So Cormac was your guy. Cormac was was my guy. I mean, if I had a, I mean, yeah, sure. Okay, but doesn't personality count for something? Because Cormac is the worst. Well, it's not like Cedric had a great personality either. Yeah, but Cedric was like brave and athletic and smart and everything, and Cormac is like licking his fingers and like eyeing Hermione, and it's gross and squirmy and yeah. horrible. Yes, Cormac is kind of a douche, but um, that then leads us into <laughs> couple six, which actually isn't a couple. It's um, it's a foursome. So Cormac McLaggen, Hermione Granger, Ron Weasley, and Lavender Brown. This is a uh, romantic entanglement number six. And obviously this is like the crux of the whole book because while Harry's dealing with the Half-Blood Prince and Voldemort's out there in the world – Hogwarts is all about love and hooking up. 
And I don't even know how to get, how to get started on this, other than I guess our entry point is that Cormac and Hermione are in the Slug Club together. They're in the Slug Club, and Cormac has a thing for Hermione. And he's even said, made a couple comments to Ron about it. You know, he said he told Ron that he's going for Keeper at Quidditch tryouts and that he was trying to get with Hermione. And at this point, there's been enough flirtation between Ron and Hermione. They're not a thing yet, but, like, you know that there's some attraction there. So it's like, oh, God. Like- well, they had the whole Yule Ball blow up. He really is the anti-Cedric. He is a bro. He's arrogant. He's overly sexually forward. Um, he's an idiot. He repeats his seventh year again, but that's that's for a later Super story. Super senior. Luckily, Hermione never really reciprocates. And in the book, it's actually a lot more understandable why she hates him, because he's just such an arse to, to the Weasleys and everyone. But Hermione kind of utilizes him a little bit. She does. Because Ron has got his own lady, and uh, Hermione Hermione needs to combat that. Ron has got Lavender Brown, right? So Lavender first notices Ron in the joke shop. Um, they actually go way back. Lavender is in their year. She's a friend of Hermione's, we assume. I mean... She's been around from the beginning. Yeah, I'm not sure if Hermione ever really liked the other Gryffindor girls, but then again, we only know the names of, like, two of them. But it's only when Ron's star begins to rise, now that he's a member of the Quidditch team, that... Lavender gets together with her Juan Juan. Oh, God. And, um, yeah, it's it's really just a gross relationship. Hats off to Jessie Cave, who plays Lavender. Oh, she's so good. She's fantastic. And there's a whole scene where Ron is in the hospital wing. He's poisoned with love potion by batshit crazy girl Romel Devane. They go to Slughorn. He accidentally drinks poison booze. There's a whole story that I'm, yeah. like, simplifying in We're one sentence. We're condensing it. But... Ron's in the hospital wing, and uh, Jesse Cave, as Lavender Brown, has this incredible scene where it's just her monologue of insanity to rush to Ron's bedside, and she has to do it with Alan Rickman, Michael Gambon, Maggie Smith, and Jim Broadbent. Talk about having a nerve-wracking day on set, right? Like, most of these students didn't really get that many scenes with all these incredible British actors, and here is this unknown girl coming out of nowhere having this amazing scene in the middle of this film. Anyway, Ron and Lavender suck. We hate them. I, I mean, I liked Lavender's aesthetic here because that was one of those characters in the books that I never really had a picture we until the film. Yeah, and also we haven't really seen a character like her before. I mean, I guess she's like the female equivalent of Cormac in a certain way, but like this is the first time we're getting sort of like, I don't know, easy love interests. Yeah, I don't know if there's – I mean, I don't think she's like a female Cormac, only in the sense that like they're, she's the female – 
like beau of Ron, but like she's not. Their personalities really aren't similar. I guess they're just both kind of weird and off. I mean, Lavender, there's something strange about her. She loves divination. She is a pureblood witch. I always wondered if her middle name was also a color. Um, (laughs) She has a pet rabbit named Binky. There's also an interesting thing about Lavender in that um, there's some controversy as well because she was actually played by two different actresses in different movies. Chamber of Secrets, she was played by an actress. Prisoner of Azkaban, played by a different actress. And then Jesse Cave enters. Um, And what's also what's kind of caused some controversy is that both of those actresses were black. And in comes Lavender, who I'm not sure if um, skin tone was ever discussed in the book now that I think about it. But uh, it certainly was a strange little move on the filmmaker's part to uh, just kind of bring her in and kind of whitewash. But, um, you know, Jesse Cave is is great uh, in the movie. I do appreciate her. Well, Mark. Up. While we're on the subject of lavender, more lavender. I know right. how much you like her, so we're gonna play a little game called "How much do you love lavender?" Okay, and it's a true/false game. Bring it on. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Lavender's house is Gryffindor. True. The first mention of her is in Sorcerer's Stone, Chapter Seven, and it's when they're riding into school on the Hogwarts Express. False. Do you know why? The first mention of her is when she's being sorted. Bingo. Yep. Rockstar. I know you know you're <laughs> lavender, but we're gonna we're gonna see how you feel. Uh, her favorite subject in school is charms. False divination. Mm-hmm. Her BFF is Parvati Patil. True. True. Yeah. Oh you're yeah. Right. I was like, maybe it's Padma yeah. <laughs> or Professor Trelawney. To be honest, you mentioned she has a pet rabbit named Binky. R.I.P. The rabbit died. Mm-hmm. Um, Ma- it was like mauled by a fox, wasn't it? I don't know how the rabbit yeah, died. It was mauled by a fox. Yeah, you know. You know. Uh, she was a member of Dumbledore's army. True. She speaks 98 words to herself out loud in the books. Oh, God. Um, wait, words to herself? Yeah. Uh, sure, true. Why not? False. 43. Oh, but we're still sticking with the theme that Lavender Brown talks to herself. <laughs> yeah. I definitely she did not pick up on that. Out. Uh, she speaks 13 words to Ferenz. Oh, uh, sure. Uh, uh, true. False. It's eight. Now okay. I'm just being kind of tricky. Great. <laughs> okay. Lavender and Parvati are the top gigglers of the books, coming in at 11 giggles. Pottermore did a ranking, guys. 11 giggles? Yeah. All right. I'll believe that she's the top giggler. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's followed by Hermione and then Ron. Hermione and Ron as gigglers? There had to be some more giggles in that school, please. I'm just, I'm relying You know how high the Hufflepuffs got? Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Lavender and Ron make a cute couple. False. <laughs> Yeah, this very is false. I was going to say, like, this is a yeah, very Yeah, no, that's one-sided. an opinion one. <laughs> <laughs> and last thing, she dies in the Battle of Hogwarts, and Fenrir Greyback sucks. Um, the, Neither true nor false. I think it's true, but that's my opinion. <laughs> okay, so here's what you got to know about Lavender Brown. Nobody's sure whether or not she lives or dies. I actually have tweeted at J.K. Rowling. I just asked, is Lavender Brown alive? Because it is a huge debate in the Harry Potter fan world on whether she lived or died. Battle of Hogwarts, she gets attacked by Fenrir Greyback. The last we hear from her, her body is feebly stirring, is what it says in the book. And then the film, she looks pretty damn dead. There's no feebly stirring. There's just, yeah, no. there's just laying It's like there. some open, glassy eyes. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that you see like Trelawney and... and uh, maybe Cho or maybe it's one of the Patil sisters I can't remember who's with Trelawney crying over a body that's being like covered and I'm pretty sure it's Lavender so 
there's always been big debate this on whether Lavender lives This is a question that keeps Mark up at night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Pottermore referred to her as presumed dead, but that is still TBD. Um, also, uh, fun tweeting. fact. In the German version of Sorcerer's Stone, uh, they accidentally call her a guy. So moving on. <laughs> um, number five. Uh, we can zoom through this next one. Love Triangle, Harry, Ginny, and Dean. Um, obviously, we know that Harry is crushing on Ginny. He kind of just fully abandons the crush on Cho. I think uh, after Cedric dies and then after she sells them out, Dumbledore's army in the last book, even though it wasn't really her fault, she was under the truth potion, um, Harry's just sort of randomly moved on. Like, we just never talk about Cho literally ever again. And he loves Ginny. He uh, goes to the burrow, and uh, she's the first one he hugs. And it's really heightened in the film, that romance. There's a lot of almost kissing. There's some hand grazes. Um, Lots of staring. Yeah. But Ginny's taken, and Harry knows it. Ginny's dating uh, Dean Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I do have to say, Ginny's actually had quite a uh, romantic history at Hogwarts. I don't think we talk about that enough, but, like, Let's let's look at it. I mean, she went to the Yule Ball with Neville. Um, <laughs> the next book, she dates Ravenclaw Michael Corner. Here, she breaks up with Michael Corner to date Dean Thomas, and then breaks up with Dean Thomas and starts dating – not dating Harry, but, you know, has They Harry. have a thing. One could even say she dated Voldemort when she was, like, a first year. Like, she loved Tom Riddle's diary. Like, she would – it was just her in the diary, like, in the bathroom. So – there was an emotional, it was like a long distance, like cyber connection. Oh my goodness. I mean, she was catfish, but you can't blame her for that. Anyway, her Patronus is a horse. She has a pygmy puff. And yeah, she is Harry's soulmate. I think that's nice. I think it's nice what J.K. Rowling said about Ginny in the years after the book, because I think she was surprised that not everybody loved Ginny. I actually never really cared for Ginny. I, well, I don't know. What about you? As a girl growing up reading Harry Potter, was Ginny like, another choice to identify with besides Hermione? Did you see yourself in her, or do you, was she just sort of, like, background? I wouldn't say she was just background, but I wouldn't say I, like, saw myself in her, really. She was somebody who was just, I guess, sort of there for me, and I didn't have very strong feelings about, in the books, at least. But in the movies, I don't like her at all. Mostly because it's not so much her, it's that I don't think she and she Daniel Radcliffe have any chemistry. There was no chemistry. It was a little wooden. I, yeah, I do When think they're in the room of requirement and she's like, close your eyes. I'm just like, oh, God. Their first like, kiss. Make it stop. Yeah, the <laughs> like, first kiss should have been this magical thing in the common room. And instead, it was this nasty room of requirement, just boring. I mean, I, I agree with that to a certain extent. I think it goes both ways. You know, she and Radcliffe, I think, didn't have chemistry together. I don't know how much it would have been improved if there was a better fitting Ginny. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, at least in the book, I mean, the thing is I never really cared that much about her in the book either. So to be fair to Bonnie Wright, Ginny was doomed from the start. But J.K. Rowling does insist that um, she said, quote, the plan is that the reader, like Harry, would gradually discover Ginny as pretty much the ideal girl for Harry. She's tough, not in an unpleasant way, but she's gutsy. He needs to be with someone who can stand the demands of being with Harry Potter because he's a scary boyfriend in a lot of ways. He's a marked man. I think she's funny. I think she's very warm and compassionate. These are all things that Harry requires in his ideal woman. So whatever your thoughts on Ginny are and Ginny and Harry together, you have to be happy for Harry in finding his soulmate. And because and if they're soulmates, they're soulmates. And clearly anyone who's read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child 
knows, okay, like she's actually pretty fantastic. And you do got to appreciate that. You know, Harry married his best friend's sister. Like, right. That's adorable. For that matter, we should just throw a little tip of the hat to Dean Thomas. This is, I guess, the most we'll ever hear from him. Um, he was actually supposed to be a much bigger character in the series. His name, of course, <laughs> was supposed to be Gary. But uh, we kind of broke the news to him. He did not know that that was a, that that was a <laughs> but thing. But the thing that but, I can't get over is Gary and Harry. Yeah, it's, it's it doesn't make sort- any sense. It's all sorts of awful. But um, Dean Thomas, I love him because he's so loyal to Harry. Um, he and Seamus are kind of the, you know, Neville represents them a little more than they represent themselves in the world. But Dean and Seamus are still Harry's best buds. They're part of the Gryffindor boys crew. Yeah, it's such a great group. I remember reading a story that director Chris Columbus was so surprised when J.K. Rowling suddenly revealed that, like, she had all this backstory for Dean that he was a minor character and suddenly she had this huge, huge history for him. Um, He was supposed to be a much bigger deal, but she then went on to say that uh, all of the backstory she was going to introduce about him in Chamber, she kind of just transferred onto Neville um, and that, quote, voyage of discovery was something for Neville's character to do instead. But you always got to wonder, like, what would it have looked like if Dean Thomas was either A, Neville himself, or B, an additional member. If it wasn't a, you know, there's the core three and then there's kind of four. If there was five from the get-go, would it have meant as big of a deal when Neville, Ginny, and Luna get involved? So yeah. I don't know. Moving on, now we're into our top four. And um, we got to go a little dark again. Because uh, we're done with the fun stuff. It's we're done no with the more lighthearted, a teenage uh, adolescence. Yeah. Oh, I guess the last thing we never really said, though, that, um, you know, when Ron was in the hospital wing, he is woozy, says Hermione's name, breaks up a lavender. So that's that. <laughs> lavender actually is done. But uh, we should just say that, you know, Ron and Hermione are kind of finally together. Although then Ron doesn't remember saying well, he Hermione's did, name. Yeah. And so lavender's out of the picture. It was just a moment. In yeah. Time. When you see her stare, like... <laughs> eyeing Hermione down at the Great Hall. That's amazing. But anyways, darkness. We're heading into the darkness. And number four on our list, next couple is Malfoy and Harry. Classic couple. Classic. Fanfic loves this couple. (laughs) If you've ever, like, Googled Malfoy and Harry, you probably, you've seen some stuff. It is very real. So their relationship in this book um, is basically one born from suspicion. Harry is suspicious ever since he sees Malfoy going into Borgen and Burke's, this really dark wizard magic store in Nocturne Alley, um, and hears him talking about keeping some objects safe. Obviously, we know Malfoy has a mission. We don't know what it is, but Harry quickly comes to realize he does have a mission. Um, he overhears Malfoy talking on the train, to like bragging to Pansy Parkinson and friends that he's got a mission. And, uh, and he's he, not going to be around next year. Yeah, and there's that awful attack Ahead, Malfoy stuns Harry, breaks his nose, puts an invisibility cloak on him. That's like the most brutal, actually, it gets between Malfoy and Harry, well, essentially. no, I think what we're about to talk about is the most brutal. Yes, fair, <laughs> valid. But yeah, so Harry is just suspicious of Malfoy the whole year. And things keep happening that he assumes it's Malfoy, kind of in a boy who cried wolf way, like when he thought Snape was the one who was doing all that stuff to get... To get through the trapdoor. Yeah, in Sorcerer's Stone. So, you know, there's the Vanishing Cabinet. There's the Curse Necklace to Katie Bell in Hogsmeade. There was the um, Poison, what was it, Whiskey to Slughorn? Some it was sort of Poison booze. Mead. Poison Mead. All this sort of culminates in, um, you know, in the film, Harry talks to Katie Bell. She says, I don't remember who, who cursed me. But then she sees Malfoy, freezes, and Harry's like, 
Yep. He just is... knows. And he had actually accused Malfoy earlier on to McGonagall and Snape in the movie. And yeah, it's like you said, nobody believes him because what evidence does he have? But Harry, I think... Well, it's like he's blinded by hatred is what everybody always tells him. Yeah. But he's right this time and he follows Malfoy into the bathroom and they start battling it out. And that's when Harry pulls out a curse from the Half-Blood Prince's potion book. Sectum Sempra. Sectum Sempra. And it just basically cuts Malfoy up and it's horrible yeah. and bloody and he's lying on the bathroom floor like it, whimpering in pain. It's kind of like the stabbing curse. I, I remember a friend once told me that like that was what he would call it and I was like whoa mind blown. Like I always thought of it as more like a, a swordsman. I guess that is a stabbing. Yeah exactly. It, it's it's like the fencing curse with, without the, the cute little padding. This is a good example of why you don't trust blindly and it's kind of the ultimate rug pull in that this half-blood prince seemed to be a pretty good guy who was helping Harry. And then he realized, oh my God, like this is actually, what did I do? It's a big lesson for Harry. Snape eventually comes in, sees exactly what spell Harry had used. And he'd been suspicious. Harry had his book all the year long because he was so good at potions. But now he knows, obviously. Before we move on, I do like the idea of creating curses. I think that's a fascinating thing we don't know enough about. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, Half-Blood Prince Snape created so many curses. He, or, you know, spells and charms and potion innovations. He did Levacorpus, which is actually a popular one. And, like, Langlock, which, like, locks your tongue. I don't know. Oh. But, um, yeah, the idea of, like, creating a spell, is it like like making an app? Do you know what I mean? Like, like do you submit it for <laughs> approval? Like, how does one create a spell? So well, we'll never know. I think what's important about this moment, too, is, I mean, from the very beginning – Malfoy and Harry have been at odds with each other, and this is the ultimate culmination of their feuding. Yeah, they've they've dueled in the past. They've verbally sparred. There have been some punches thrown by, like, Hermione and, and friends. They have actually dueled with wands, like Expelliarmus here and there in the dueling club. But this is the violent showdown between Harry and Malfoy that actually precedes Deathly Hallows, where it's not violent. It's, it's actually fascinating. This is the I think Harry is- Voldemort battle. Of this rivalry. Absolutely. I think this is the peak of Malfoy and Harry's hatred for each other because it's such a sort of, I guess, wake up call. Well, it's not that know? Malfoy has the hate. It, it's it, In a sense, it's kind of one sided in this point because Malfoy actually isn't fighting Harry out of hatred of Harry. Malfoy is so distraught by having to carry out this task of killing Dumbledore That's true. that um, he's actually just uh, hateful of kind of everyone. But anyway, we, we just sort of have to move on. Um, we're in our top three. I guess we should have talked about this a little earlier, but our, our next couple. Now it sounds so silly to call them couples because, like, it's we're in dark territory now. But um, next couple is uh, Harry and Voldemort with uh, special guest appearances by Slughorn and Dumbledore. As we said earlier, Harry's mission, you know, Draco has a mission. Harry's got his own mission from Dumbledore. They both got their lords kind of telling them to get something done this year fascinating parallel as jk rowling is wont to do dumbledore has been giving harry lessons on voldemort's history as a sort of ramp up for getting that final memory from slughorn which harry eventually does by using his felix felicis potion gets him drunk lots of lucky things happen and harry completes the memory between slughorn and tom riddle which turns out to be the revelation that tom riddle knows about Horcruxes. I was in the library the other night. 
in the restricted section. And I read something rather odd about a bit of rare magic. It's called, as I understand it, a Horcrux. I beg your pardon? Horcrux. I came across the term while reading, and I didn't fully understand it. I'm not sure what you were reading, Tom, but, but this is very dark stuff, very dark indeed. Which is why I came to you. A horcrux is an object in which a person has concealed part of their soul. But I don't understand how that works. One splits one's soul and hides part of it in an object. By doing so, you are protected should you be attacked and your body destroyed. Protected? And part of your soul that is hidden lives on. In other words, you cannot die. And how does one stretch his soul, sir? I think you already know the answer to that, Tom. Murder? Yes. Killing rips the soul apart. It is a violation against nature. Can you only split the soul once? For instance, seven. Seven? Merlin's beard, Tom. Isn't it bad enough to consider killing one person? To rip the soul into seven pieces? This is all hypothetical, isn't it, Tom? All academic. Of course, sir. It'll be our little secret. So Dumbledore has reason to believe that Voldemort made six Horcruxes. Um, he's got one; it's the ring. Uh, but he has two. He has a diary as well. And the diary has been has been, uh, you know, destroyed, destroyed in Chamber of Secrets. Um, and he has reason to believe that there there are some others, um, and they all leave a trace. But uh, he doesn't really give much help to Harry at this point yet. But when Dumbledore gets this memory, it seemingly confirms to him that. His suspicion that Voldemort has, in fact, split his soul up um, is is true. Uh, It's a big leap, you know, but I guess he needed to know that Slughorn told Tom Riddle about them. I find it interesting that, um, you know, Voldemort brought it up to Slughorn. He's like, I was in the restricted section, which also, like, what is restricted? Like, (laughs) literally every book. Everybody gets into the restricted section. Yeah, nobody doesn't get in there if they don't want to. But it's like he clearly read about them but didn't know enough about them. Slughorn didn't really tell him that much unless he truly kind of went on to explain, like, what you do. Yeah, Um, Because that's the only way that this would have enough gravity. But something that I've been thinking about is, I mean, how much blame can we really put on Slughorn? No, that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, he's been beating himself up over this for years, going into hiding and, you know, tampering with his memory so that people don't know what he said to a young Tom Riddle but, I mean, Tom Riddle had come across Horcruxes anyways on his own. Like, if anything, Slughorn just sort of elaborated on it. And he would have found another way to do horrible things. I don't think he can really be blamed for it. Yeah, I think it's kind of dumb of Dumbledore to be like, oh, this says it all. Like, girl, whatever you thought you knew about Voldemort, you were right. Like, <laughs> literally, you, like, come on now. Yeah. Anyway, like, yeah, once he gets the memory, Dumbledore decides, yep, it's time to do it's time to destroy the locket that I know exactly where it is. Um, 
I, I know it's a horcrux. Like, okay, I'm glad we waited the whole time for you to get the memory. <laughs> this is on the subject of Harry and Dumbledore. I, I don't think that Dumbledore was necessarily just waiting for that memory. I think he was preparing Harry for this moment, as you said. Because I suppose. It's he, just all strange timing. Yeah, I, I mean, I do get that. But I think, like, in book five, movie five, we talked a lot about how Dumbledore was sort of keeping Harry in the dark and treating him as a kid. And here it's like he's grooming him for this massive task to take on. And he treats him as an adult. He takes Harry with him to go destroy this Horcrux, trying to destroy it. I mean, the thing you got to know is that in the book, it's so different. Harry learns about Horcruxes and then there's still plenty of time before he goes to destroy one with, with Dumbledore. In the movie, it's a little more manipulative, kind of like as we we just said. But, yep, Dumbledore enlists Harry to go get this locket. There's the whole, I don't even want to get into it, the drinking water and, like, the poison water and the, the inferi, fairy, Which are horrible. Oh, God. Like, dead people in the water. It's, it's a whole thing, but long story short, they get the locket. They come back. Dumbledore does the whole fire thing. It's pretty pretty cool, actually. Um, and then they're in the astronomy tower. And uh, that brings us to couple number one of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is Snape and Dumbledore. Now, we can't even really get into it, right? We sort of have to save this We can't this really get into it because we're thinking, we're thinking with like the headspace of where these characters are at and what Harry's seeing. And at this point, Harry is watching Dumbledore interact with Draco. Draco is finally confronting Dumbledore, and he says he has to kill him. He's been given this task. He has to do it. But Draco, while I think has hints of evil and badness he's not truly bad in the way a lot of the other death eaters are and he he can't can't bring himself to do it and the other death eaters arrive they get there via the vanishing cabinet um that draco had kind of been working on all year trying to perfect the magic of that they're there bellatrix is encouraging him but ultimately snape shows up and snape is the one that kills dumbledore right so we 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 sort of have to backtrack a little on this one of the biggest uproars in in the translation of book to movie is in this scene. In the book, Harry is Petrificus Totalist under underneath the astronomy tower, which explains why he doesn't go up and help. Because everything we know about Harry tells us that his instinct is to go help and to be brave and to not think and be reckless. The second he saw people closing in on Dumbledore, he would have moved had he not been petrified. Yeah. But... In the film, all that keeps him in his spot is Snape shushing him, which is just an outrageous. I I, I like it because in the next movie, it's or the seven point two, it's cited as sort of the ultimate move of Snape protecting him, but people just don't buy that Harry his character would ever not move. I definitely understand that, but. Earlier in the film, there's a whole speech from Lupin where they're talking about Snape and whether or not to trust him. And Lupin basically says, if you trust Dumbledore and Dumbledore trusts Snape, then we have to trust Snape. And that they can't turn against each other. So I think you could argue that that is what motivated Harry in that moment. Sure. He could he could have been recalling the conversation and thinking, okay, I'll stay quiet. But yes, there's arguments to be made for that. But I, I do know fans kind of really did hate that. But um. Yep, then uh, Snape kills Dumbledore. Michael Gambon really botches this scene. Another another uproar from fans is is that he says, you know, you're supposed to take Severus, please. Like, you're supposed to interpret that in so many ways. Like, please don't. 
or, or please do. Please do. Michael Gambon interprets it as please don't. Kind of, I think. And this is a guy who's actually never read the books. So thanks a lot, Michael Gambon. Mark, I was going to ask you because this is where it's well, I mean, Dumbledore does come back in the movies later on, but this is basically the end of Dumbledore. Is there anything Literally nice, the end of Dumbledore. nice you have to say about <laughs> Dumbledore? Oh, I love Dumbledore. <laughs> and Michael Gambon in particular? No. Have plenty of nice things to say about Dumbledore. The actor who plays him, not so much. <laughs> I I, uh, I was not sad about this. But I do remember reading this in the book and, and being just truly shocked um, that this happened. This was kind of the ultimate. You didn't see it coming. At all. No, nobody. I mean, nobody did. I mean, I didn't either. I just, I was curious if maybe you had yeah. some idea as you were reading it. You know, this went down in history as Vader is Luke's father. You know what I mean? No, this, absolutely. This goes on the, the pop culture all-time Hall of Fame chart of, of spoilers. And I remember seeing a video of people driving past midnight uh, book release parties yelling out, Snape kills Dumbledore. That's just and so... It, so shady. People are always going to be people are always going to be shady. It's awful. But I also remember when this book came out in the in the months afterwards, Borders, that old bookstore. <laughs> they had these signs that said Snape, friend or foe. And in my head, my naive head, I thought, well, well foe. You could have asked friend or foe all leading up to it, but the second he killed Dumbledore, foe, literally foe. Like how is there room for interpretation? And yet other people believe, nope, nope, I bet there was something more. I bet there was a reason. I just never I, – I never agreed with that. I just thought, yep, foe until proven otherwise. You dare use my own spells against me, possibly. Yes, I'm the Half-Blood Prince. I don't remember what I thought at the time, but I think that this is one of the greatest character arcs that I've ever encountered, for sure. Who? Snape. Snape's reveal. His reveal that he killed Dumbledore and then that he did it all part of a plan to save Harry and protect him. Which we will get into uh, in two weeks time but that now uh that does it for where we leave half-blood prince who by the way is snape and he reveals it to harry and uh, you you gotta feel bad for snape uh you can see it in his eyes that you know he wishes he could tell harry everything he sees the pain he understands the pain he knows what he just did he tries to keep harry at bay and you can feel how torn apart he is over it and also i mean i i wouldn't have been surprised if harry tried to to kill him but he didn't so a lot of drama ahead, but um, we're going to take a little uh, not drama break and talk to one of our favorite actors from the series, Alfred Enoch, who you know on How to Get Away with Murder, but before he was a star on ABC, he was a big uh, part of the Harry Potter series, and he is uh, our interview this week to talk about the unsung heroics of Dean Thomas. <laughs> Today's guest, thank you so much for calling in, Alfred Enoch. You know him from How to Get Away with Murder right now, but uh, if you grew up with Harry Potter, you knew him as Dean Thomas. And uh, Alfred, thanks so much for calling in. How's it going today? No worries. Yeah, it's going pretty well. How's it going with you? Uh, it's going fantastic. It's an honor. It, it, Goodness. It is an honor. It is an honor. 
What uh let me ask you first off, what are you most asked as or about being Dean Thomas? What are you asked the most about your time in Harry Potter? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um <laughs> um probably the the thing I'm most asked is what Dan Rupert and Emma are like. Really? That's the like that that's kind of like that's that's less an interview question. That's more like people are like, Oh, you're in Harry Potter and then people kind of the the unasked question is people look at me and go like, I don't remember you. You know, <laughs> I mean that's that's something that happens. I think. People kinda of look at me and they're like, Who's he? Um that's like that's separating like the people who've seen it from like the mega fans of whom there is a large number, obviously, because Harry Potter is, you know, it's his whole thing. So I, I'm always still amazed that people even remember me given, given my relatively limited appearance in the movie. Um, yeah. No, go on. Sorry. I'm nattering away. Oh, no. You know, I should say um, before we continue, there are definitely super fans out there yesterday because I found a compilation video of every time you appeared in Harry Potter. And that includes just you, you know, standing behind Dan or Emma or anybody. So they're out there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And this was like 13 minutes long. This is 13 minutes, 13 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. Someone really, someone really went to town. They did go to town. Honored. But I always (laughs) sort of feel like Harry Potter is such a, like it was such a huge thing and people feel so strongly about that. I, you know, I, I, I am honored, but I don't think I could take any credit for that personally. Do you know what I mean, I think things things like that are an indication of how much people love it rather than how much people love me standing in the background, for example. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Alfred, when you first auditioned, if you can remember all those years ago, what was the sense of Harry Potter all the way back then? Because it was... It was a growing phenomenon, but it's it certainly mm. wasn't at the audition. It wasn't the the beast that it became. No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. But um, I think I had quite a, a surprisingly good sense of it, considering how it hadn't taken off in the sort of national level at the time. I'm talking about back back home in England, but um, because it had taken off in my school, so in in, in sort of my very small, you know, ten year old world, it had it had it was just starting to sort of reach the kind of fever pitch, even at that early stage, that it, it was sort of, well, maybe not quite, because it was such a mass phenomenon. But um, we had actually been introduced to the first book by an English teacher when I was uh, eight years old. And we all started reading it at a class, and sort of no one really liked it. Really? <laughs> and everyone was like, it, which is hilarious given sort of what followed. But yeah, my industry is obviously very sort of forward thinkingly. It was like, this is good. And we started reading it. And I remember everyone was about, mm. no one was too hot for it. And we ended up not finishing it, um, which is bizarre because about one and a half years later, two years later, someone went back to it. And then kind of everyone went back to it. Yeah. It was very weird. Like everyone went back and read it, sort of of their own accord. It wasn't schoolwork or anything, obviously. It like picked up some traction. And that like resonated with our 10-year-old minds. And, and, and we read the book. And by that time, Chamber of Secrets maybe had come out or came out very shortly after. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by the time I went to the audition, I had, I had read the philosopher, what we call the philosopher's term. And, um, and, the Chamber of Secrets, and the Chamber of Secrets was like the first book I'd ever 
like compulsively read. Yeah. Like I was, I remember we were on the, like in the car with my parents going to a dinner. I was reading the book. Like I got horribly car sick. I was reading the book. I was up in the middle of the night finishing it with a bit in the Chamber of Secrets and I was sort of terrified and delighted at the yeah. same time. <laughs> so for me, I sort of, I, I, I already, like it was, a, it, I already knew it was going to be a big deal. Or it felt like a big deal to me, not to sound like prophetic, but it was more that in my world it was huge. Um, so I couldn't imagine the specifics, but by the time I auditioned, I had seen like, I had seen that they'd cast Dan Rupert and Emma and I'd seen it on the news. So it was like, it was like on the real news, you know, that's back before you had so much news really yeah. in England. Like you can get news on the internet or, or whatever, or at least I didn't know about it. So I, it was on like the 10 o'clock news or the six o'clock news or whatever it is back home on the BBC. And I was like, Oh, this is a huge deal. So by the time I went to my audition, I had a bit more of a sense of that. So tell us a little bit about what your audition was like. I mean, did you test with other Gryffindors and, and you know, who do you remember meeting at those first auditions? Um, the very first one, I don't remember. I mean, the way it all happened for me was a little bit odd and unusual. They were auditioning sort of all over the country, you know. I mean, it was, it was like a mess, like it was a big spate because obviously they had to find a whole cast of young kids, which isn't the easiest thing to do. Mm-hmm. And they came to my school and lots of people auditioned, but I didn't audition because I thought, you know, I actually, I, I remember being like, I mean, the, the black character in Harry Potter is Lee Jordan. And like, he's too old. Like, I, I, you know what I mean? I knew it. I was like, I can't play Lee Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's meant to be 15 or something. Or however old he's meant to be in the first one. But that also, but mostly because like, I was, I was nervous. I was terrified at the notion of it because I, I had already figured I wanted to be an actor. So like the stakes were high for me. So anyway, I didn't audition. Um, but I was doing a play at the time. And sort of after those rounds of auditions, the play went on tour. So I was on tour with the play, and then I got a call asking me to audition on the basis of the fact that someone, one of the casting directors had seen me in the play. So that was how it's, which I know, which is ridiculously fortunate. Yeah, <laughs> it was just preposterous, but it sort of came, came to me in the most kind of bizarre way. So my first audition was, um, was in central London, I did two, and they actually asked me to read, amusingly, Lee Jordan. They were like, oh, could you read the... Because, you know, what were they, they weren't going like, to be like... The, the, the sides weren't going to be like Neville. Hey, look, Neville's got to remember all. You know what I mean? <laughs> that wouldn't have been right. probably a sufficient test. This is what I ended up saying in the first move. So they got me to do, like, the speech that Lee Jordan does uh, commentating on the Quidditch. So I sort of learned it and prepped it and went in, and I auditioned in with the cast and director in, um, in Denmark Street, right in the West End, and went in with my dad, mm. and, and, you know, we we worked on it because well, I wanted to get it. Yeah. About it. <laughs> Alfred, let me ask you, when you were, uh, so when you actually are filming the, the film, and uh, Neville's got to remember all, that's like your signature, I guess, uh, Philosopher's Stone line. Do you remember that day and how many times you had to do that take? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, actually. I really don't. I think that's so I always I always feel my memory is awful. But also I think this is like a little bit of an indication of um of kind of how I approached it all as a kid. I remember things like the first table read and like obviously there's lots of stuff I actually remember. Specifics about things like that. I think I was very like I wasn't 
that's the wrong thing to say. I was going to say I wasn't bothered. I was hugely bothered because it was. I knew it was a massive deal. I loved the books and I wanted to be an actor. Do you know what I mean? So it was a, it was a massive deal for me already. But I wasn't very like, no, I was 10. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah. this is fun. So I don't remember the day. It wasn't like I was like all nervous that I had to say something. We were all just like bumbling around playing and having a fun time and trying to get out of tutoring. Um, right. You know, you were in all of these films. So which one, which mm. one does stand out? Bar to one. You? Oh, bar, oh, you weren't in. Um... I was in the first half of the last movie. So, I mean, they split it in two. But oh, I mean, gotcha, I, gotcha. Two movies, right. really. But yeah. Yeah, Dean doesn't pop up in like a campsite, like behind a tree. Um, no, exactly. He was going to, I mean, because that happens in the book. And when I read that, I was like, oh, I was like, great. But yeah. we, it didn't make the script. I was gutted. I was like, oh. Which set from which film does stand out to you the most? You know, if you if you did grow up on these, which one do you have the most immediate memory of? Uh, the great, the great set for sure. We sent a lot of time there just because it was because it's such a huge set um and it's such a central set in the like in the stories and the movies it was it was somewhere we spent a lot of time and when we had scenes in there it took a lot of time because if you have a great hall scene you have all of the characters i'd never really thought of it at the time but now i understand like that's a lot of coverage, you know what I mean? And often, like, I think in the first, second, no, which in the second movie, Lockhart and Snape have a duel. And shooting that took like three weeks to shoot that scene. To, like, you know, special effects and, you know, 400 people in the room and like the little cauldrons that hang from the side of the wall were always on fire and the flow and the, the, you know it I means so much they've got to put visual effects they've got to put in the the ceiling you know because obviously there wasn't you couldn't see the night sky but like they had to make it so you could and, right and, and like just that every character is in the scene so there was things like that were huge so i think probably in terms of not just the amount of time but also how iconic the set is it, for me, as a lover of the books, do you know what I mean? It was like the great, or we arrived, we were like, oh, what does this look like? I'm not sure I can quite remember the first time I walked in there, but I remember I remember what it was like. I remember how impressed I was by that set. Yeah. Then, like anything, I think you get a bit spoiled. <laughs> and shooting that dual scene that you just mentioned, you know, were you a good kid on set? Like, did you stay quiet, do your lines, or, you know, were you kind of messing around, like hanging out with Matthew Lewis and and everybody else that was around. Yeah, I think probably we, we I, I can't speak for anyone else, wasn't necessarily like the best behaved, but I don't think we were, I mean, it must have been, I think it must have been difficult just because we were like 11 to, not, I think I was 21 when we finished. So, you know, we were kids. So I don't think we were like, difficult other than that we were kids and we were enthusiastic i don't think we were like oh we're not interested like i think we were <laughs> genuinely keen about what we were we were all very keen about what we're doing as like indicated by the fact that so many of us are still actors and still working so you know people it's it's not that we didn't take it seriously it's that we were like 11 and yeah we were telling each other's jokes and we were giggling and running around but like the majority of our misbehavior was we're sort of offset, which is interesting because I don't, rem it's not like anyone was very, I don't remember them, like production being very stern with us or anything. 
You know, it was a very right. like accepting, welcoming environment in that respect. That's how I remember it. You know, it wasn't. What about um? What about like the sixteen-year-old years? Do you know what I mean? Like once you got between <laughs> sixteen and twenty-one, what was that like? What was that like? Um, I mean, that was. I would almost say like the misbehaving came mostly before that because the, the basically the regulations around having kids on set in the UK are that you have to, like, everyone's got to be in school up to the age of 18, up to 16, right? But after that, you don't have to be. So you're not, so we weren't obliged to do tutoring. A lot of the kind of misbehaving went, as I remember it, like, existed around tutoring, um, uh, which was like we have to do by law a minimum of three hours of education a day. So if you imagine, like, you've got a massive film set and, Hundreds, you know, hundreds of people in the scene and so much else going on. And they have to make sure that every kid gets three hours of tutoring, at least, while they're there. So, like, they've got a schedule around that. But we would, they'd be like, but they had to give us breaks and things. So we'd have a 15-minute break. And we'd be like, great, let's, like, let's go. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> let's, let's make this a half-hour break or whatever. But then, like, the AD has got to tally it. And so it's another 15 minutes before, you know, whatever. It's another 15 minutes out of somewhere else in the day. Yeah. But we, we didn't have any conception of that. We were just sort of running around misbehaving and, you know, playing Tony Hawk's 2 and like Tom's <laughs> oh room or whatever. Do you know that'll, what I mean? Like, that'll what, date you, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the, actually the other big bit of misbehaving was probably again was before that. I think tutoring was like a big kind of dividing line in terms of our experience because we were sat in these classrooms together mm-hmm. for the most part. I think uh, Dan Roop and Emma would choose on their own because they had so much to do and they were never at school pretty much. Right. Or, you know, unlike the rest of us, they had much more. So who were you in class with? Were you in class with Devin and, and Matthew? Yeah, like Devin and Matt. It would move around. Like, I think each day you'd be with different people, but like Devin and Matt and Afshan and like, we would we, some some of the classes we were really like we, we gave the tutors a, a bit of a hard time sometimes because they had a very difficult job because they couldn't they can't teach us all what we're all individually doing at school yeah so we mm-hmm. they kind of have to monitor it as we get on with it but so we're inevitably chatting and trying to mislead them about what we're actually meant to be doing and like you know once I was like oh, I've got an art project and I just didn't, definitely didn't have an art project at all yeah. Yeah, that was a sort of, and we would get more and more bullshit and bold. I remember once I, you know, I was, we were like typical kids. So once I answered the phone for the teacher, she wasn't happy about that. So I got sent out. And she can't send me out because I've got to be in because I've got to do the hours of tutoring. So like, I mean, it was just the stat. I mean, I, I remember the details of those things. It's sort of not as not most people, but every now and then, like, Matt or Afshan would remind me of like some particular day of tutoring. <laughs> we, the poor tutors, we kind of drove them up the wall a bit, but they were they were great. They were just sort of swimming against the tide in terms of in terms of how we approached it. Um, <laughs> but that was, I mean, that and and locations. So we pretty much we stopped doing as many locations after the first or second movie, and I, I and that was a bit of a shame mm-hmm. because. <laughs> we would all get shipped off to stay in a hotel together at some other part of England. Right? <sighs> and and obviously that was a riot. Like, that was great. <laughs> it was not literally a riot. Yeah. Like, remember the first location we were all on a plane together. It's like the first thing we did, we went up to Annick Castle 
to shoot, among other things, the, the, the first flying lesson with Madame Hooch. Uh-huh. And this is like one of the first things. So we're all like 11 year olds like on the plane together, like messing around, like we were tearing like credit cards out of magazines or something and just just making a mess. But we're like just in the plane compartment with everyone else. You're probably thinking, what the hell is this is yeah. like school trip or something? It's a nightmare. Who are these group of kids? Yeah, exactly. Who are these horrendous kids? Yeah. And then, you know, it would be 30, 40 of us in like a hotel. And we would like go out to TGI Fridays and like suck all the helium out of the balloons, and, like you know, <laughs> run around the hotel playing knockdown ginger or, or yeah. you know, whatever it is. So I think after a while they were just like, "This is we can't do this anymore." So yeah, <laughs> they pretty much built the main sets um, on on the studio, like places that we like went to Gloucester Cathedral. Like the the following movie, we were like, "When are we going to Gloucester?" It was like, "We're not." <laughs> the cloister is on stage three now. And we're like, oh, that's a shame. Uh, that must so have been funny. so different. Um, now, Alfred, going back to the story itself, you know, of all the Gryffindors, what did Dean add to the group? <laughs> that's a really harsh question. Unbelievable. <laughs> he doesn't get a ton of screen time, but I mean, for Mark and myself and all our other Potter loving friends, you know, Dean is definitely a standout. So, you know, what made him such an integral part? of this crew that we saw on screen for so many years. It's funny. I, well, I don't know about on screen because that, that talks too directly about myself. I can't do that. But <laughs> I don't have any perspective on that. But I mean, it, it, in the mm-hmm. books, I mean, it was kind of indicative from the first, like, I, do you know, I mean, he was a very real part of it to me because he is, like, he's from, a muggle family or you know so he thinks right and he goes into this world and he likes football and you know supports west ham or what we call football and you know he seems like obviously harry is our touchstone character but he's a little bit like he's got a whole different thing going on so i always sort of thought dean was like quite funny he's like just an, he's like an ordinary guy not an ordinary guy you know there's there's, there's lots to him but He's come from like the muggle world, and it's just like, oh, this is cool. And he wasn't like locked in a cupboard all his life. Do you know what I mean? He was like, I, I always sort of thought about that, like how cool it would be to be like, as, as it is for like Harry or any any of the characters who like aren't exposed to magic really before they, or the magical world before they get to Hogwarts. But like, how cool would Quidditch be? I can imagine just being like. Spend your life like watching football, and then you're like, there's like basically this better version where people fly around on brooms, and like three things are going on at once. It's like, wow, tight. <laughs> um, so I always, I always liked him very much for that. I always thought like he was quite. Like, I always thought he'll be all right. Do you know what I mean? I thought like he was like not that he had it together. Maybe. Oh, maybe yeah, he had it together. Yeah. Like, he went out with Ginny. Like he's. I'm like, I think he seems like a cool. He seems like a cool, like, popular, like, him and Seamus get on very well. And, like, he, I was just like, he seems to be having, like, at least a nice, normal, like, the enjoyable version of a childhood at Hogwarts and not the, the Harry Potter nightmare experience. <laughs> the Harry Potter which nightmare I kind of, experience. Which I kind of thought was nice as well. That's a great band name, too. Also, like, great drawing. So, like, that's, that's also, that's key. That's key, but I always wanted to, I always wanted to have like a scene where he's like explaining football to Seamus or something. I thought for ages I was like that would be great. 
Totally. I, that, that one doesn't material. But maybe he is like, is there that in the books? I think maybe I think he does at some point in the books, but no, it's an interesting point. Like, did you fill in certain like blanks for Dean that we never saw and, or did JK Rowling ever talk to you and, and kind of like, yeah. Like, All right, Alfred, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dean that nobody else knows. So yeah, there's the, the, like, the whole, when this became a thing, but the whole story, which wasn't, I'm not sure it, it's, my memory's so bad because it's been ages since I read them now. But like, but I think it doesn't come out. The whole backstory of his father, if I remember rightly, is uh, I mean, you guys may well know this better than me now. But um, but his his father was a wizard, but was like in hiding because it turns out actually because it does come out that he's not actually. Well, what does it come out? He's not actually a muggle, but like. His mother never knew that his... He's a half-blood. Right, yeah. he's a half-blood. His mother never knew that his father was a wizard. And like, I was like cheering for all of this to come out. I was like, what a great story. But I mean, that's kind of... That was the difficulty of the... Well, one of the difficulties of the films. And this is something people sort of initially, at least before they kind of... Before the films became canonical, for want of a better word, in their own right, or before the films became l- legit... It seems like an odd thing to say, but at least in the eyes of fans, because in the first couple of times we were like, "Where's Pete? Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> how could they cut out this? How could they cut out that? How could they cut out the other?" And and the the simple answer is just like the you know, even with the first book, I I like I remember knowing that we had like knowing. I mean, I'll put that in inverted commas, but I've inverted commas, but I remember having this notion that we had something like. 10 hours of footage or something Wow! Um, for the first movie. I don't know if that's continuous story. We must have more hours of footage. So that I sounds about that. right, anyway, though. Like this is, but, but in terms of how big this world is and how much you could paint with it, but you, but you can't do that. So so much has to go. So much has to go. Like I did 60 days on the first movie. I think on the first movie, we were, we were more trying to work it out in that respect, but... I think I did more days on that than any of the others because, like, there's so much to put in that obviously you can't. So, like, things, stories like that don't get to be explored. Oh, I just had a thought. Maybe they should do, like, like they're doing with Star Wars, like the Rogue One thing, things, like, around the world. Actually, how great would that be? Yeah. To be able to see, like... A Dean Thomas standalone movie. I'd watch that. Yeah, a Dean Thomas standalone <laughs> movie. That's essentially what I'm pitching, but you've, got, you've, you've outed me. I thought I was more going to make it a bit subtler than that, but, like, essentially, yes, in, in search of a job. And, Alfred, there's... I, you're right. There's a lot that we still don't know about Dean, and J.K. Rowling recently tweeted that his original name was going to be Gary. I mean, what do you think of that? Gary versus Dean? It was going to be what? Gary. It was going to be Gary. Yeah, she just revealed this, that Dean was originally named Gary. Wow, that is really, because that is nuts. <laughs> I, I mean, you guys have broke that to me. And I'm, right. I mean, it's like anything, like, could you imagine if people like, it wasn't going to be Harry Potter. It was going to be like Brian. It's just like great, great name, but difficult to process at this late stage of the game. Yeah. Does Dean feel like a Gary? Wow, Gary? No, I can't. I can't work with Gary. I wouldn't have. I mean, that's such a trip in my head. I'm like, but like, there we go. Obviously, 
yet again, she made the right choice. So I respect the hell out of that. That's great. <laughs> you know, you were talking a little bit earlier about how Dean has sort of a, a cool factor to him. And, and Mark and I were saying, you know, there's something a little sexy, a little suave about him. He had the whole thing going with Jenny. So when you think of all that, Gary, to us, didn't seem very fitting, I guess. Um, would you agree with that? Gary doesn't seem very fitting. Very, like, it It doesn't read like a sexy suave name to us. <laughs> Dean is a much more, well, I think uh, I love the way you're just being honest. I'd, I'd be thinking, <laughs> what about all the Garys listening? So, yeah, sorry to all the Garys. Yeah, we're, my bad Garys. We're trashing you. Uh, I think it's a very sexy day. Um, <laughs> all right, what, I, wanna, I wanted to ask you real quick, where where do you think Dean ended up? What do you think Dean was up to after all was said and done? Uh, Have you been asked that before? Um, what, in the, I, I, I yeah, I've, well, fr- friends of mine were like, so, or people, people have been like, so what about the play? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As if like, people have jokingly been like, did they, did they ask you? <laughs> Obviously not. Obviously they didn't ask me to do the play. Um, but they were like, what's, you know, is Dee did the play? I was like, I don't know. I would. Li- I haven't seen it yet, so please don't spoil it for me. Because these people are talking about it as a book, but I'm like, this is one of the things I find so cool about the play that it's, it's a play do you know i mean we've got a new story as a play and there's going to be a new story as a film and people will be like wow you know the textbook came out and like people have read that but like it's not a movie of the textbook do you know what i mean it's a movie of as far as i get it it's a compiling of the right. textbook right or, or so it's, it's the fact that you're getting these different stories appearing for the first time in different media i think is very cool so I don't I, like. I want to experience that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the other question is, can I possibly ever get a ticket? But I mean, I want to see the play. <laughs> right. You know, because it's just totally. awesome. well. You can get a ticket for uh, Fantastic Beasts at least. Yes, I think that I will manage. So I will definitely do that. I'm definitely looking forward to that. But I don't think I don't think Dean Thompson. I don't know if Dean Thompson is going to be the player. I, I, I would be surprised. Um, but where is he now? Um, I don't know. I think he's all right. You know what I mean? I think he's doing pretty well. I think he's probably just like quite happy. And like, what's the time? It's like 18 years later, is it? Or 17 yeah, years later? Yeah, it's like 19 years later. So he's he's in his, I guess, four, like he's it's about 40 or 38 or so. Yeah. 36. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think he's like, he's probably like got a family. He's pretty happy. He's got kids. He's just like, I think he just like does pretty well. Him and Seamus like go and watch the Quidditch <laughs> on yeah. the weekends. Do you know what I mean? Like I can, I can genuinely. He would still be best friends with Seamus, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like to be. I mean, that's the other thing. All these characters have been through such traumatic, traumatic, sorry, well, sort of, and bizarre things in their sort of early youth. That kind of bonds them together, doesn't it? And like they, they've kind of been through a lot, I guess. So, yeah, I think they'd still be friends. Plus, like, I always get the impression like it's a small world. So that's one of the nice things as well. It's, in a sense, as huge as it is, it's also sort of intimate. You know, you get people know each other from Hogwarts or whatever, and that's like one of the, like the cool. It, there's a lot of interconnected tissue. Um, yeah, totally. So I sort of, I, I imagine he'd be, he'd be just doing pretty well, seeing Seamus, kicking it, still watching <laughs> the Quidditch. Maybe like what's like pickup sports to like Wizards play. Yeah, him and Seamus, they could join an intramural team, intramural Quidditch. Yeah, 
Exactly. How good would that be? But Seamus was never really any good. He was clumsy, but uh, I think Dean got pretty good at that. So like, I don't think he would ever have made it pro. But, you know, I think he he wanted to be keeping it up, keep, keep his broom handling skills. He's just like a football dad. You know what I mean? He, like, coaches his kids' Quidditch team. It's just... He coaches the team. That is so yeah. fun. That's such a great thought. I love that. All right, Alfred. Well, thank you so much for calling in. You are you're a legend. No. You are the Dean Thomas. You're the Gryffindor. <laughs> until until they do the spinoff and it's someone else. That's yeah. All. Or yeah. unless he's at the play and it's someone else. That's a, that's, <laughs> that which would be fine. Pass, passing it on. Sharing the love. Passing it on. Uh, I love it. Alfred Enoch, thank you so much for giving us a call. No worries, uh, guys. We appreciate it. And, thank uh, you guys very much. Yeah, be well and congrats on How to Get Away with Murder. Thanks. Bye, guys. God love Dean Thomas, a seminal member of the Gryffindor tribe and uh, one of our uh, favorite callers. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks for joining us for this dark, nasty, hormonal, (laughs) lighthearted ride through Half-Blood Prince. And next week, we're talking Deathly Hallows Part 1. Yeah, so um, there will not be as much sitting around as you might be expecting. Um, Thanks for listening. Tweet us at Mark Snedeker or at C. Molly Smith. Or you can send us an email at binge at ew.com. Subscribe to us, rate us on iTunes, and we will see you here next week. It all goes down. It all ends. Deathly Hallows Part 1 on EW Binge.